I was told when I arrived this evening, they looked at me and they said, saw the mic here, and they go, oh, Randy, you giving announcements tonight? And I said, no. And they said, I said, actually, I'm teaching. And they said, we got a memo that says Lance is teaching. And I said, and they kind of looked at me funny, and I'm wondering, so if you were expecting Lance, um, those of you that need to, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Please don't leave. Please don't leave. So we are in the book of Matthew. We're going to be in the book of Matthew for probably most of next year as well. We've gone through the schedule and, and planned that out. Um, the last time that I was, I was speaking with you, I, we finished off uh, Matthew 8. And I will tell you that I didn't finish Matthew 8. And uh, tonight, um, when I sent my slides or the notes to them, or the scriptures, I had 30 of them. And you're going, oh gosh, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> I promise you. And I told her up there, I said, you don't have to show all 30 of them. And then I have my notes here, and you can see all these pages, front and back, and notes. And, and the reason I do that is because I usually speak just totally out of memory and impromptu. And I discovered when you have a set amount of time, you end up only getting half of what you're supposed to talk about. So this is meant to keep me on track. And we may not get done tonight. We're supposed to cover 1 through 17. But I had, uh, there's a guy, his name is Todd, I can't think of his last name. He is the, he does the Israel tours for um, Talbot Seminary, and he's been doing it for years. And he has a company called BiblePlaces.com. And so I've been talking with him, and he sent me 10,000 images that he's been taking of everything to do with Israel and Galilee and all the places and artifacts. And so... I'm going to show you 10,000, no, I'm not. But my head is teeming with all that information there. And so it's, in fact, as I was sitting down here when the worship song, I said, wait a minute, was that Daniel 9 or was that? And my mind started, and, and that's a scary place to be if you're teaching where your mind just kind of wanders a little bit. But before, and if they could hit that first slide, before we get going, I wanted to remind you where we are. It's, it's the one that's the map, kind of. Hopefully we can get that right away. There we go. So when we were in Matthew 8, this is where we are now. And if you think of Galilee, and you think of the Dead Sea, that's the body of water down around Jerusalem, and then if you go up north, you have the Jordan River going up, and it, it kind of weaves its way into the Sea of Galilee. And then at the top of the Sea of Galilee, between Capernaum, Chorazin, or Chorazin, whichever way you pronounce it, and Bethsaida, that little triangle there is probably where most of Jesus' miracles and that took place. And 90% of his time was spent around that map. And so we're focusing on what he did while he was around there. And he would go back and forth, back and forth across the way. And we were talking last time with a, the Jesus boat was found down around Magdala. Magdala and the feeding of the 5,000 took place around um, Bethsaida there. In Gamla, we doesn't really talk about it in the scripture, but this was a time just before Lance talked about it last week, um, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. In 67 A.D., there was a huge uprising, and so the Jews that wanted to fight against Rome, they went to that city of Gamla, and they got up on the hill, and there was 9,000 of them. And Rome sent out three legions, so 18,000 men, and they basically surrounded it and then began to march up the hill. It's actually a mountain. When they got to the top, they killed 
about 4,000 of them. The other 5,000 jumped off the back of the hill because they didn't want to be caught and tortured by the Romans. In fact, the Romans were killing so many people in this era that they ran out of wood for crucifixions. And so when this, this is this very tumultuous time, I guess, right after Jesus was here, but the people were thinking about that all along. There was two governments. There was the Roman government, and then there was that kind of pseudo-Jewish government. But we weren't, Jews weren't in charge, so they had to make sure they appeased Rome. And so all that was going on at the time that Jesus was talking and traveling around um, the Sea of Galilee there. Now the next picture, just to give you a little bit, if I got, there we go. This is the Sea of Galilee. Last time we talked about when Jesus, when the uh, disciples went out in the ship and it was dark at night and Jesus walked and came out to them, or excuse me, he was sleeping in that trip. And they said, Master, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? These are the waves. This is a lake. So this is the waves, an example of the waves that could come up in the Sea of Galilee. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see if you were on the shore, this is what it looks like on the shore side. So this can happen because the winds and the thermals that are going there, you can create a huge uh, storm. And this is what the disciples were concerned about. Now if you go to the next slide, okay, so this is what this, the coast of um, the eastern coast. So if you're looking at that map we originally started was, and you had um, Capernaum up here, and then you got Bethsaida over here, and then you went down the Sea of Galilee. We're going to talk about, just a second here, the end of chapter 8, where the demoniac was there, and then when he was, the demoniacs, uh, the demon said to Jesus, don't throw us, you know, throw us into the swine over there. Put it, can we go into the pigs? And he said, go. And so they go. And this is an example of where they think one of the two places that it might have been, there was a steep, steep slope there over here toward the harbor. And so this is an area right now that you can actually go visit here. If you go to the next slide. Okay, and this is another example of that steep slope that the swine were on top, and then they would rush downhill and run into the Sea of Galilee. And the next one, this is at Kersey here. Okay, this is overlooking the Sea of Galilee from the west. So if you were over on the side of, um, just to the west of Capernaum, you see these mountains and hillsides, and a lot of them here, the cities were actually built on top of that. And we're going to see the next one here in a second. This, by the way, so this is Hippos, and this is a city on the east side. So I want you to imagine for a second the Sea of Galilee there, and if you were looking at it like there, so you go on the left side, there it is there, and it showed the city there, Hippos. That would have been across the sea on the eastern side. And Hippos was a mountaintop, and there was a city on top of it. This was part of the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was a region that started midway down the Sea of Galilee and went down south. And it was an area that uh, Alexander the, the Greek started, or Alexander the Great brought in the Greeks, and then of course the Romans, and the Hellenistic uh, influences were huge in this area, the Decapolis. It stands for 10 cities. It actually got to be 18 at one point in time. But there was a city on top of here, and it was incredibly technological. It was very, very advanced. Um, they had uh, arenas. They had the big, um, dome, what do you call them, hydrodomes? Um, hydro, what's that word? Meth I can't remember the name of the word. 
these athletic stadiums. <laughs> so they had a lot of athletic stadiums there. And if you put in the top of the hill when the city was built up, there'd be lights on it. So when Jesus was on the other side on the Sermon on the Mount, he could sit there and when he would speak to those people, he would say, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And he could point across the Sea of Galilee at Hippos there. And if it was night, they could see the lights. Imagine the lights of a city if there was any kind of light there. They could see that. And so that stuck out. Right below that, if you went across from the Hippos to the other side, there was the Sea Magdala there, and it was a seaport where they salted all their fish. And when Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount, he could point right down below them, and he said, if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out. And they would understand that. So the geography of the, of the area there was significant when we're reading the scriptures and trying to understand what went on. So if you keep going here, the next one, that's, that's the city, that's the excavation of, of, of Hippos there again. And you can see the other side is where Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And if I think I've got one or two other real quick. Is there any more there? Oh, this is what I wanted to show you. Remember when Jesus said not one jot or tittle will pass away before all is fulfilled here? That little circle there, from where you're sitting, they probably look identical. And it's the difference between when you're going to your Microsoft Word and you have a serif font and a non-serif font. That's the difference here. And sometimes the word that it's part of there, it could be the difference between one time it was an example of the word horse and another time it had to do with a biblical destination. And so it was very, very clear that horse wasn't the right thing, but sometimes scribes, when they were taking these various documents and parchments and they were interpreting it that, if they misread that there, one of those to be the other one, it changed it. Sometimes people wonder, like, does that mean there was mistakes in the documents? No, because we can take all the documents and line them up, and we line them up, and we can look at the various things and how they were translated along the way, and we see that it was translated the same, the same, the same, and this one was different. And that scribe might have gotten a little bit lazy, and imagine with the pen and the, the, the uh, like the feather of the scroll, the quill that they used, it couldn't be very exact. And so when you read it, you might not be as accurate. So we've got thousands of documents we get to compare to determine what that was meant. But that's an example of what Jesus was saying, that these things won't pass away. And the last one, I think, or maybe that is the last one. Okay, this is another example of what the eastern side looks like and the Golan Heights in the distance there. Kersey, that's where we think one of the places where the swine could have gone into the sea in Hippos is that city that I told you about, the city set on a hill there. So here's what he said, though, in that chapter. Chapter 8, the last couple of verses. When he had come to the other side of the country of the um, Gergesenes, there met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished into the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw them, they begged him to depart the region. So it's interesting. So the swine are there, the demon-possessed man, 
There's two of them in one of the other accounts, but only one is primarily the focus here for Matthew. So that the demon-possessed man, they see Jesus, and immediately they know who he is. And you think of James where he says, the demons believe and they shudder. They recognize who Jesus is. And so today when people say, well, I believe in God, that doesn't amount to a whole lot when you realize the demons, as soon as they saw him, they recognized who he was, even to call him the Son of God. Now the, the man there, he says, and behold, the whole city came out to meet them. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus, well, let me read it to you in Luke chapter 8. The end of Luke chapter 8, it says this. Jesus said, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. In Matthew's account, he went back to Jesus and he said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, go tell everybody. He went and told everybody. So what was the outcome of that, him telling everybody? Well, we've all heard about the feeding of the 5,000. That took place, if you remember that map, Bethesda. I'm going to yeah, that's right. Um, that took place just to the, if, if remember that map there, just to the right down a little bit. That's where we think that took place. And then down a little bit further was where they had the feeding of the 4,000. Two different places, two different things. The feeding of the 4,000, we see that there was 4,000 people there. How did there get to be 4,000 people in that area? This is the guy that was spreading it throughout all that region, 4,000 people there. In fact, what's interesting is when they were there, the disciples went to Jesus and said, how are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to feed them all? They had just done the 5,000. Now we're at the 4,000. And you would think, they might think to themselves, well, wait a minute, he, he already fed five. Surely he can do four but they didn't get it. Later, Jesus is asking them, don't you guys get it? Don't you understand? And if you think about what Jesus was facing here, we had a group of people that were showing up at these miracles there. They wanted, and we talked about this last time, they wanted the food, they wanted the healings, but they didn't understand. And his disciples didn't understand. The way it ended the last time is they said, Whoa, what manner of this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And Jesus would say sometimes, have I been with you so long that you don't yet understand? So they were, they were as confused many times as the people Jesus was talking about. Now the fact that Jesus had large crowds didn't mean he was successful. It just meant a lot of people were listening and hearing. A lot of them just wanted to get healed. And, and, and really, you can't blame them for that. And sometimes, like we're here in Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew 8, the whole city came out. Now, later on, we find out in certain places when they came out, the Pharisees and the scribes were there, and they wanted literally to take Jesus and uh, throw him over a cliff. And you think, what in the world could possibly be when here a man comes out, the disciples are hearing all the people, they're seeing all those miracles, and their desire is to throw him over the cliff. Today in our culture, we look at whether it's you know, calling a man a man, a woman a woman, or vice versa, what it is, and we say, how in the world can people be so confused? It just doesn't make any sense. And we've, you've heard that expression before. It says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. When Jesus was here performing miracles, healing people, the blind see, the deaf hear, that when people were confronted with them, 
the leaders got together and they tried to capture and throw him over a cliff. And you go, what in the world were they thinking? In Luke 8.37 it says, Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat, and he returned. They were seized with great fear. He had just taken the demoniacs and basically cured them. They were calm. They were normal. They could see that. The city came out and saw it, and they were seized with great fear. So that's the kind of environment when we leave that and we head over to chapter 9 now. So when you get to chapter 9, here we have a couple of stories, and they're really simple stories, and you know what they are already. You've heard them before. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And at once, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed and went to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. And Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick... But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So here we have the story, chapter 9. We have the paralytic who's healed. We have Matthew's called. We have the questions about fasting. And then we have the wineskins. Four little points in the story here. What's interesting now when it starts off when it says the paralytic. So you and I probably haven't seen anybody that was quite like this guy. In those days, obviously, they didn't have medical science the way he, the, we have. But what we think it was is that it was probably a man that was in the latter stages of paralysis because of syphilis. He had all the signs. Um, we know today that when you get to that point, it starts affecting your brain, and it starts, literally, you can't think, and your body functions stop, and you're literally paralyzed. That's what happens today. So this is one of the reasons we think that's what happened here. So we think that's what the, par uh, the paralytic was. And in those days, they had homes. They had a single-family home. 
um, I shouldn't say single family, a single story home. And on top of that, there, again, it was very hot in the summer, you would go up in the heat of the day or the end of the day and you would get on top of the roof. And you had an outdoor stairway to get up to that roof. And so people go out there and they would sit at the cool of the night waiting for the heat to go down before they went back in their house. We think this was, and if you go to Capernaum today, you can see a uh, two replicas, not replicas, but ruins of what one of those houses looked like. And they have the stones there and I didn't bring that picture, but I could show you that picture, and you can visit that today. We think it was Peter's house. So Jesus is in this courtyard, so there's a big courtyard outside the house, and you can go in the house, and people are there, and it said the crowd was so big that these two individuals there, they couldn't, um, they couldn't get into Jesus. So the question now is, what were they thinking? When they saw this paralytic come up, they didn't make room for him. So they had to come up with plan B. But what was the thought of the day about a paralytic? Well, if you think of Job, when Job was sick, what did his friends say? Job, you must ascend. Jesus' disciples also were concerned about that. And they often said, they said, Master, which one has sinned? Was this his father or his mother? You know, they were concerned. They didn't understand the connection between spiritual condition and sin. They they didn't know how to how to do that. I'm not saying that here because you're sick, it's a spiritual condition or not. We have to be careful we don't connect those dots. We do know that if you have certain habits and certain lifestyles, that sickness can come, whether it's hepatitis or STDs or if you if you were drunk all the time, you can get cirrhosis of the liver. And you know what's interesting about that? You can say there is no relationship between your health and um, whether or not you're spiritually right or not. But the fact of the matter is the day that you die, you died of the last thing you were sick from. So it does have an impact on how we're going to go. And in fact, Jesus wrote, raised three people from the dead. He rose uh, Nicodemus and or Lazarus, excuse me, and then Jairus' daughter, and then the widow Nain, uh, widow's son of Nain, and he raised them from the dead. But all three of them then died, too. So from that situation there, there is, there's no real clear cut, but the people in those days thought, if you were sick, it probably was something wrong with you spiritually. And in Matthew 4, 24, it's Jesus, it said of Jesus, he healed many paralytics. So they lined up at the doors because Jesus had heard many paralytics. It goes back to that crowd again. What was the crowd there for? They wanted the healing. They didn't understand his words. They didn't understand the truth that he was saying, but they wanted the healing. So the four men come up, and it said when Jesus saw them, or when he came right up, it says, Jesus immediately went up and said to them, or said to him, Son, be of good cheer, which is an interesting statement. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the cried said within themselves, this man blasphemes. So what would the scribes and the Pharisees be doing at a house where all the crowds were coming to see Jesus and get a healing? What were the scribes and the Pharisees doing there? They were there for no other reason other than they wanted to trap him. They wanted to catch him into something. And they thought, in this situation here, we surely can catch him. 
And it says there, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And it says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So when the Pharisees and the scribes showed up, it says the power of the Lord was there to heal. And Jesus, in Matthew 9, it says there, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what do you think, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, they didn't say anything. All he had said was to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And he can turn to them and he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Well, they, that's when they said, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your pallet, and go to your house. And, and that's, if you listen to it just the first time, what does it mean? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Well, for me, I can't do arise, take up in your pallet, and walk, because you could find out right away that I'm a fake. If I said to you, your sins are forgiven, well, you don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong there. So I, so I guess it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus said to them, which is easier for a man to say? And then, the, what's the first thing that he did? He said, your sins are forgiven. So then they said, he blasphemes. And you know what? If a person was to say, your sins are forgiven, and they weren't, you were a liar, you were a fraud. If you couldn't do it, you were a blasphemer. And if you could do it, then you were God. So they were 100% right saying, if Jesus wasn't who he was, he would be a blasphemer. And if no one can do this but God himself, then they were right once again in their theology. They're right about the blasphemy. Well, who is this then who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they were right. Only God could. Now, sometime today, people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And people that don't believe in the scriptures will often throw that at you and sometimes say, well, Jesus didn't mean to say he was God. He actually, he did. And even right here, he claimed to do the things that only God could do. Only God can forgive sins. He agreed with them. Only God could make a, a paralytic pick up his pallet and walk. Only God could perform that. And he agreed with them on that too. So now they had a problem. He can agree with them, but now they have to look at what he said. So they said, which is easier? For them to do. To say your sins are forgiven, you'd have to be God. To say rise up and walk, you'd have to be God. So Jesus essentially is saying, I said something to you that only God can say. And now I'm going to do something for you that only God can do. So Jesus is saying, I am God here. He showed that he had the authority to do both of those things. Jesus said something and he did something. Now, remember when we talked Matthew 8, the point of the book of Matthew was to announce that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the coming king. That's who he was. 
the disciples would say, who is this man that can tell the winds to come and the seas to come down? Who is this man? So the whole book of Matthew always reminds us that we're trying to define who is this man Jesus? They would say, who are you that you can forgive sins or that you can tell a blind man to walk or a paralytic to get up and walk? And then it says, Jesus seeing the evil in their heart. They didn't say anything. So the question was, is, well, does God, is God a mind reader? Was Jesus a mind reader? Well, in John 2, he says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he himself knew what was in man. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused, I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In 1 Kings 8, he says, Then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts for all the sons of men. As for you, my son Solomon, know the Lord of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Then in Ezekiel, he says, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord, This you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. So the scriptures make it very clear that God knows our heart. I was speaking with a group of uh, high schoolers, and I asked them the question, How do you know that you're saved? And of course, they gave me all the answers that people would say, well, I, when I was a young child or when I was a little older, I went to this meeting or I went to a crusade and I, I went forward or I, my parents led me to Lord in our bed. All of the kinds of things that we would say that demonstrates it, that we once received Christ. But it says, but the Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knows our hearts. That's why Jesus at the end says, we're hearing about it in Revelation, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. God knows your heart. God knows the thoughts and intents, what we're trying to do. Today, there's a lot of this concept of deconstruction. And you hear about church leaders or ministry leaders and song leaders that suddenly say, you know, I, I, I don't believe anymore. And you say, well, how, in the, how could that possibly be? How could you possibly do that? We talked about this last time, that if you die to self, if you die and you give your heart to the Lord, you've said no to the flesh and you've given your heart, you've died. You can only die once. You can only die once. It's all his now. You, have, you own nothing. You died, it's all his. But for the person that doesn't die, who's, well, not certain, I wonder if I can dabble. I wonder if you can, we'll talk a little about that here. I wonder, I wonder if I can, wonder if I can get the best of Christianity and the best of the world too. I wonder if I can have both. He's reminding us here that God knows our heart. In Leviticus 24, it says, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born of the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. 
the Pharisees were standing on solid ground. But I wonder if a person proclaims the Lord and does all these things and then later deconstructs and says, I wasn't, I didn't really believe, I did all those things and said those things, but it wasn't of pure heart. I wonder how God views that. These men here, they had first knowledge now. They saw Jesus. They saw what he did, and they saw what he said, and now they had to make a decision. There was no middle road anymore. You couldn't say and hide behind anything false. One of the greatest testimonies you and I can have is when we stand up before someone and we share what the Lord has done. They can refute our arguments, our intellect, our lack of intellect, our lack of understanding of certain scriptures and things like that, but what they cannot deny is what God has done. God is more concerned, though. We see it here. The first thing that he did was he forgave the man of his sins. He was more concerned about his eternal state than he was about the physical state. Physical healing only just gives us a little more time on the earth. God's objective is to heal the soul where it lasts for eternity. So it begs the question here, well, does God still heal today? Some people say, I wish we could go back to the book of Acts where all that stuff took place. Book of Acts is over 30 years. You know how many miracles took place in the book of Acts? 30. You go, really? 30. And you think, wow, I thought there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. and all. No, 30 miracles. So it's not greener over there if God's still healing today. So here's the question that all this begs of us is how comfortable are you with the sovereignty of God? We say God is sovereign. He can create. He can do whatever he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But when it comes to those things that are really personal, are we really comfortable with the sovereignty of God, that God can do what he wishes? And that we're, go we're good with that. We're okay with that. Johnny Ericatata, you know, she was you know, injured in that, that accident and became a quadriplegic. Then she had breast cancer. Then she got COVID last year. Now she's 73 years old. And she says, what God did to me was a gift. That's, that's hard to see. But she didn't get that way because she had great eyesight. She got that way because, as God says, I don't look at the outside, I look at the hearts. Here was a woman that has a relationship with God that sees the heart of God, and she's fellowshipping with him. So to call it a gift is she's seeing what God is doing on the inside, and that is a gift. A walking with Jesus in a relationship that most don't understand is a gift. What that'll do for all eternity, you and I don't know, but I can't imagine that it'll be, if, <laughs> if we're here at A and we gotta get to B and she's already out here, I wonder what that means, what she gets to go experience in the future too. So there was some challenges here with these people. 
The next thing that they do here is it says, the Matthew, they saw Matthew, they walked by. And if you were in the northern regions there and we said Capernaum was up there, as you went up just to the left of the center line there, and then if you went over to the right side, you were in Bethesda, not Bethesda, Bethesda, that Matthew, and that was at a point where two different um, Roman areas were ruled. Remember King Herod, he had his three sons, and, um, and that was King, or Philip was one of his sons, and Oedipus was another son, and then Archelaus was another son. Those were the three sons that were ruling. And Archelaus was too evil, so they kicked him out, and they didn't bring a son in, they brought in Pilate. So you had Pilate, Oedipus, and Philip. Well, between Oedipus and Philip, you had to cross that area there, and those were two different jurisdictions. And that's where we think that Jesus ran across Matthew, a tax gatherer, a tax collector. And tax collectors were always linked with that word, tax collectors and sinners. They were hated. Why were they hated? Well, because Rome was collecting taxes. And if you were in Rome at the day, you, any one of you, if you were there, you could say, I want to collect the taxes on behalf of Rome. So you'd partner with Rome, and you would collect the tax that was due, and you could charge whatever you wanted as your fee on top of that, and you got to pocket that. So it basically went out for bid, and you bid. So if you were supposed to collect $1,000 in taxes, you might say, I bid 2000 And if you awarded that, you had to make sure you paid them their two, and then you collected your 1000 and as time went on, you became very, very wealthy. So you were considered a partner with Rome. What's ironic about that is so Matthew's the tax collector. There was another disciple called Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a group of people that were opposed to Rome. It was like those 9,000 I told you up on the hill and that 5,000 jumped off because they didn't want to. They made that siege against, they were going to attack they wanted to attack Rome, and obviously Rome destroyed them. Those were zealots. If you saw the movie um, um, with Harrison Ford and the last, one of the last ones of his uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark series here with, with Sean Connery, and at the end there was this, uh, a man that guarded the secret chalice in the room there. And throughout the movie, they kept running into those zealots. They would kill and they showed their chest where they would give their life and their blood because they were to defend. These were zealous people. And so Simon was a zealot. He's one of the disciples. And then Matthew is a tax collector who had been partnering with Rome. Everybody hated him. He couldn't go to synagogue. He couldn't go to temple. If you were to socially meet with him or go out with him, it was, you violated protocol. You couldn't do that. It was, it was just not allowed. So Jesus comes along to Matthew. Simon's seeing this, and I'm sure inside, he's fuming inside. So he sees Matthew, and Jesus says, follow me. And you go, and it's, he must have heard him because Jesus was going back and forth and preaching. And it says he left everything and followed him. He left everything and followed him. Remember the story about the man that said later on, Jesus, and he called him, he said, wait a minute, can I go bury? Can I go take care of my family first? This guy that was teaming up with the Romans left everything. It was a radical, radical decisions. 
what, excuse me, what Matthew was willing to do was to put off the old, take off my tax collector and everything that that meant, all the money and everything that that meant to my future, I'm going to take it off and I'm put on the cloak of a follower of Jesus. He really personified the idea you can't serve God and mammon. This whole idea of what the tax collector was about, there was a lot of traditions that they kept up and worked on. Matthew is writing, and remember, he wrote this book. It's not about traditions and what we do. It's about leaving everything behind and following Jesus. That's what Matthew did here. So then he throws a feast. He follows Jesus, but he still has this wealth right away. So he throws this feast there, and the Pharisees are there. It seems they're always around Jesus. They're looking for a way they can catch him so they can arrest him and crucify him or kill him. They've got three and a half years to do this, and they're from the very beginning out to get him. So it says, then Levi, or Matthew, gave him a great feast in his own house. This is the Luke version. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. So what's the big deal about eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Now, I was raised with five brothers. And at dinner time, it was just family style, and you grabbed what you could because we were all big eaters. We went through 20 gallons of milk a week. So mom put out the food, and we just went for the food. Hands. You didn't worry about getting the serving spoon because if you waited for the serving spoon, it was too long. Double dipping, never heard of that until I was married. <laughs> we would double dip, triple, it made no difference what we did. But if you were back in Jesus' time, the idea of sharing food, double dipping, um, eating with a sinner, that was a compromise to holiness. You could be defiled by that. So think of it this way, it wasn't just a hatred it was a belief that if you did that, you would be defiled. What happened to a leper because of being defiled? They would outside the camp. A woman once a month had, was unclean. They were defiled. Eating with tax gatherers and sinners was equivalent to that in their traditions. The gospel, then, isn't good for people who think they're good, but those who realize they're bad. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the sick, but I came, or excuse me, those who are healthy, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous, I came to save the sinners. So the Pharisees had these traditions and rules that they followed because they didn't want to defile the body and Jesus comes along and, and right in their face does everything that they would never do. They kept saying to him, why do you do the things that we don't do? And why don't you do the things that we do? And he's going to get to that in a second. He goes, why do you heal on the Sabbath? And he had to answer that to them. Or why don't you wash and follow the rules of purification that we have? And now you're eating with tax gatherers and sinners? He was not playing by the rules that they had set up. A lot of the rules that they had set up were nothing more than traditions. And you say, well, that was kind of rude. We've got them today too, ladies and gentlemen. 
without using names. There's churches within 10 miles of here that have split because of traditions. There are churches that have traditions because if they had a drum set up there, people won't show up in that church. Or if you play the wrong kind of music, they're gone. They have a tradition that they follow. When I go back to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I visit the Amish, they take me through a little mock service, and they have a bench that you sit on, and it's a three-hour Sunday service. And then they played a tape of what the worship would be like, and it's just, it sounds like a funeral dirge to me. There's no instruments of any kind. None are allowed, no accompaniment, and it's in Pennsylvania Dutch, so it's in a language I don't understand, and it's like that way constantly. They do not deviate. You cannot deviate, or you would be separated from that. There's traditions in the church today. There's denominations that are going through splits because of their traditions. So Jesus ought to Now what happened is Jesus was sitting at the table. Behold, many taskal others. We read that. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And Jesus said that to them. And then they go to the next level and they said, then the disciples of John came to him and said, why do we and the Pharisees, an interesting combination, the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples getting together against Jesus. Why do we fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Now, the Jewish law at the time was there was one day and one day only that you were required to fast, and that was the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. You were to fast that day. And in Leviticus 23, 32, it says, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month of evening from evening, to, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. In Isaiah 58, he says, It is a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul. It is to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes. Would you call this a fast and on the acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Once a year, they were to fast. In Luke 18, the Pharisees stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So the Pharisees fasted twice a week. The followers of John fasted often as well. Matthew 6, moreover, when you fast, do not be like hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. So there was this tradition of fasting. I'm calling it a tradition that the Pharisees and disciples of John said, how come, Jesus, your guys aren't doing what we're doing? We're living holy, just, and righteous lives, and you're not doing it. You're not Come on, pony up. And then some would go to weddings. And a wedding was a joyous feature. And we've talked about it before where finally when the father says to the, the son, the groom, go get your bride, he goes to the bride's house, he brings her back to the groom's house, and there's a seven-day wedding feast. 
It's a joyous feast. And some would go to the wedding feasts and they would say, I can't do that. I'm fasting today. And they'd have their clothes on and oh, woe is me. I'm fasting. I'm being spiritual. And finally, the rabbi said, we can't do this. This is a day of celebration and joy. So they had a rabbinical law that forbade fasting during a wedding. And so they asked Jesus, why is that? And Jesus responds and says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as king as the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus is saying, remember, he's already said, I'm God. We know that the church is going to be the bride of Christ Who's the groom? Jesus is. So he's the groom. He's the bridegroom. So he says to them, why should they fast when I'm already with them? How much closer to God can you get if I'm already here? And you realize that's, what do you say to that when Jesus, again, is proclaiming to be God? You fast to humble yourselves before God. And Jesus says, they don't need to do that because I'm already here. They can get as close as they want to me right now. There'll be a day when I'm gone. And it's kind of a prophecy about his future, his coming death here. But he says, right now, it's a day of celebration. They got me. I'm here. They don't need to fast. And when they do fast, it'll be heartache and grief. And there was times after Jesus was crucified that they walked and when Jesus showed up, he actually fed them. They were in grief. He fed them. He predicted that's what exactly what would happen there. And then right after the fasts, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the, from the garment and the tear is made worse nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. Now with six boys, Christmas for us pretty much was you got three new undershirts, new undershorts, and a pair of jeans. That was a big Christmas with six boys, you can imagine. And so during the year, you didn't get new jeans. And we had those... Mom had these little patches. They were iron-on patches with glue on them. And if we had a rip here, put it on there, she ironed it on. And it wasn't about being stylish or anything. You know, and today it's amazing. You're paying someone in Taiwan or Vietnam $50 to do what I got with a patch. But that's what he was talking about here. Mom had to make sure when she did that that it was done in such a way because when she washed it, if she put it on a brand new jean, it would be fine. But if it was on an old jean that had been washed and already shrunk, you know, and I was, I was fitting good, and she put that patch on there, and then the patch shrinks. Well, if the patch shrinks now when it's on fixed permanently and it starts pulling away, it's going to tear off and maybe make the rip even worse than what it was when it started. And so Jesus is saying, you don't put something new on something old, Wineskins got brittle when they got old. They got to a point where you just can't 
do that anymore with wineskins. He, he went from patches to wineskins then. And he said the same thing is true. You can't put something new in an old wineskin. The same thing. You put wine in the wineskin, it's going to basically like carbonation, it's going to release the gases. And if you put it in something that's stretched to the max, it's going to keep stretching and it's going to pop. So if you've got something new, the container has to be new. If you've got old pants, old with old, new with new, you can't mix the two things. You can't put something new with something old and have it work out together. And that was the point that he was trying to make all along here. Remember, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the son of David, fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, and he was God. He can forgive sins. He can make the lame walk, the blind see. He can raise those from the dead. He says, I am coming. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. He's ushering in the new. They had the Old Testament. They had the law that basically pointed them. By the way, did you know there was nowhere in the law that it said if you follow these things, yeah, you'll get blessed and your land will get blessed and your flocks and your sheep and so on, but it never, ever, ever promised them heaven. That was never a promise until Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the old law. And so now Jesus is ushering that in. It is new. But here's what you can't do to the Jewish audience. You can't take what I am and put it in or on your old stuff. It won't work. Peter had a real problem with that. He kept trying to tell these new believers, you gotta be Jewish, you gotta do this. You gotta take the old and you still gotta have, you gotta keep that when the new comes on. And Jesus says no. And then he was having dreams and God was trying to tell Peter, no, no. What I have is new. They don't need the old. So how does that apply to us? Well, the old was to reach out and they sacrificed animals. And the new is to, well, we can reach out to God. All we have to do is accept the sacrifice of the Savior. The old way was centered on man's faithfulness toward God, fulfilling all those things. And the new way now is centered on God's faithfulness toward us. The old way, they had to perform things. In the new way, it's grace. So the same is true for you and me, our kids, is Jesus didn't come to patch up our lives. And when I said earlier about those that say they were serving the Lord in all these various capacities, and then they deconstructed and left. Jesus didn't come and want to take them from wherever they were and put a patch on their life and let them enjoy that patch for a while and mix it with whatever they were doing before. You can't add it on to your life. You can't say, boy, it would be great. I've got this good life here, but if I can get Jesus on top of this, and sometimes Christians, the church did it to ourselves because we told people, I remember the four laws was is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can know him and experience him. But that was what we led with. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
the fact of the matter is, is what God did when he brought something new, he said, there's an angry and just and righteous God that sees your sin and he has made a way for you to fellowship with him because he was willing to pay the price. But you have to accept his terms. What does that mean? I thought all I had to do was cry the cry and pray the prayer. No. We talked about this last time. You know, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, okay, there's a confession. And believe in your heart. And the heart is that total part of you that God raised him from the dead. You're now fellowshipping with what he did. My heart, my being is accepting the totality of his death and resurrection. When we do that, okay, we're saved. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you're a new creation, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. There's not an overlapping. We don't say, how can I get Jesus? There's, a, there's people today, I've got three minutes. <laughs> I just looked up there. There's people today that'll say, um, when they ask about, well, can I do this or can I do that? Or can a Christian go here? Can a Christian go there? Should we do this? Should we not do this? And you listen to their arguments and what they're, a lot of them, what they're trying to do is, they're asking this, how much of my old life can I keep and still be a Christian? So if I used to do this, do I have to give that up? Or if I go over here and I do this, do I, am I still a Christian? And Jesus says, the old has passed away. You don't have this, you don't have this. It's only this. It's only this. Ephesians says, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. God's provision is complete, but it requires our complete submission. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Isaiah, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He gave everything. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus gave everything. The examples he gives is that we give everything. We give our little everything and we inherit and get accredited to us all of his everything. It's a great deal, but it requires our everything. You can't hang on to this and get up there. This weights you down. So what happened to the Jews? The Son of God is walking among them. And Psalm 81 says, but my people would not heed my voice and Israel would, not have, would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And there's a verse in Ezekiel 12, one and two, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but they don't see, and ears to hear, but they don't hear. 
but they are a rebellious people. That's what God was speaking to the children of Israel. I think it's probably true today when God looks at our culture, America and the world today, says we have eyes to see, but we don't see, ears to hear, and we don't listen. But the promise that he makes to the psalmist, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon me. He says, don't be as a mule or a horse whose trappings include bit, bit, and bridle. Don't be harnessed by the cares and the concerns of the world. He will instruct us and teach us. Behold, all things have come new. Let's pray here. Father, as, as believers, we're probably thinking, I know all this, Lord. I know all this. This isn't new stuff. I understand that the children of Israel didn't see it, but I see it. I get that. And yet here we are tonight studying it and you're sharing it in your word. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we may be, whatever we may be facing, that you would open our eyes or take away the blinders that we might see clearly. That we would hear your instruction and teaching. That we would see and hear your counsel. Father, as we spend time with you as the disciples got to, that we would understand because of all that you've done. And Lord, help us to understand, help us to truly surrender that we might be all in, completely in, nothing holding us back from serving to following and that like Johnny Erickson Tata, that we would, no matter what the circumstance might be, that we would consider it a gift to experience you in your fullness. So take your word, Father, and throughout the week, teach us with it. Help us to see clearly what you've done and what you desire to do with your people and your church. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.